in particular. Um, if you're newer here or a visitor, the, the way we preach through the scriptures uh, almost exclusively is, uh, is just what's called consecutive exposition. So we just pick a Bible book and we just work through that book. And uh, so I'm here in Galatians. The other elders of the church are, are sharing a series through 1 Samuel, but the idea is we just start with chapter 1, verse 1 and work through the book. So here we're towards the end of Galatians. Or chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Um, there's an outline on the back of the worship guide there, if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on and kind of have a map to see where we're, where we're going. Galatians 5, 7 through 12. Um, this past week, I, I looked at what the experts say I should weigh, which is always interesting. Um, so, you know, you plug in, I'm a male and I'm, you know, 6'1 and I'm this age. And then it tells me the weight that I should weigh. And the idea is that, you know, I compare the weight that I do weigh currently to that weight. And there is a significant difference there. I'll just say that. Well, the, the Bible's clear that, that as Christians, as God's people, there's a certain amount of anger we should have with false teachers. You might have noticed the, the title of the sermon there, Do False Teachers Make You Mad? Well, the Bible's clear there's a certain amount of anger we should have with false teachers, and in particular, false teachers who claim to be Christians. That should produce in us a certain amount of anger. And, and so there's this diagnostic question for us to think about as individuals here at the beginning of our time in the Word this morning. And the question is, do false teachers make me mad? So that's the question that we want to ask ourselves. And the Lord's going to help us answer that question because he gives us an example of the correct level of anger toward false teachers. And so what, what you'll be able to do, what I'll be able to do, just like I did with the body weight index, you'll be able to compare your current anger toward false teachers to the Lord's anger, as we see it in this passage, with false teachers. You'll be able to compare those two things and see if there's a discrepancy, to see if you kind of miss the mark the way that I do with uh with the weight as i compared it to my ideal weight we'll be able to compare our current anger to the lord's anger and see if we might need to adjust so with that in mind hear the word of the lord galatians 5 7 through 12. paul says you were running well who hindered you from obeying the truth this persuasion is not from him who calls you a little leaven leavens the whole lump i have confidence in the lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Okay, so, so right off the bat, let's just see our, our God-given example of proper anger toward false teachers. Look again at the final verse we just read. It's probably the one that if you were paying attention, stood out to you the most. Verse 12, Paul says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Okay, so just so we understand what Paul just said, and most of the little kids are out, but I'll use some euphemistic language here. He, he's saying he wishes these false teachers would cut off their male organs. That's what he's saying here. We know that because the, the whole conversation is happening in the context of circumcision. Remember, that's what these false teachers were saying. Their main claim was faith in Christ isn't enough. 
That's not enough to make somebody a Christian. That's not enough for your sins to be forgiven, for you to become God's child. Faith in Christ is necessary, but you've also got to have some of these good works. And the main one they would hit on time and time again is the male members of your household had to be circumcised. So remember, this is a Gentile context. Circumcision was, was something that was sort of unique to the Jews. So these false teachers were saying, no, you kind of have to become Jewish to be a Christian. And you kind of have to become Jewish in particular in this way. The males in your household have to be circumcised. So, so the whole thing is in that context. So you can see the play on ideas that Paul has there. Now, I wish these false teachers would, would cut off their, their male organ, but we also know it because of the particular Greek word that is used. So you, you probably know this, but the New Testament was written in Greek, but we have our English translations. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Well, really early on, there was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament because people could speak Greek in the first century and there were many people that couldn't speak Hebrew. So what happens is there's this translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. That's a Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. And in fact, a lot of the New Testament authors quote from the Septuagint. It's a good translation of that Hebrew. Well, we can look at the Greek word that Paul uses here, where he says they should emasculate themselves. We find that same word in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Let me read you the verse. This is Deuteronomy 23.1. No one who, whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Okay, so this is exactly what Paul is saying. It's the same Greek terminology he's using here. So when you heard that, you thought emasculate himself. I think I know what he's saying there. Yes, you know what he's saying? That's what he's saying. Okay, now the letter to the Galatians, just like all of the New Testament letters, is God's word. So it's not like Paul takes a break here and the Holy Spirit goes and has lunch and then Paul inserts his own opinion. And the Holy Spirit comes back and thinks like, oh, that's not exactly the way I think about this. No, 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 no. The entire New Testament, just like the Old Testament as well, is God's word. So what we have here is God's opinion. This is what God thinks. God's feeling toward false teachers, in particular false teachers in and around the Christian church, is that this is what would rightly happen to them. Their male organs be cut off. Now, we want to understand that, that every human teacher is in a way a false teacher. And that's because only God is omniscient. That's a fancy word for all-knowing. No human is all-knowing. So undoubtedly, every human teacher is going to say things that are wrong. So in a way, every human teacher is a, a false teacher in terms of not being perfect, not having everything right all the time. But what Paul has in mind here is, is a special kind of false teacher that is preaching a false gospel. So whereas every, false, uh, every teacher will say certain things that are wrong, not every teacher is promoting a false gospel about how people are saved or what Christ has done for us. That's the specific kind of false teaching and the specific kind of false teacher that Paul is aiming at in this passage. But for that person, the Lord through the Apostle Paul says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And see, the design behind these six verses is to explain why Paul and the Lord are so angry with these false teachers. So I think God's objective with this verse, uh, with this passage is by the end of these six verses, for us to be as upset with false teachers like this 
as the Lord is. He's building that case for us. Why should we be this upset? And in particular, Paul points out at least three reasons. Those are the first three things we're going to look at in this passage. So first, false teachers hinder others from believing the gospel. Second, false teachers aren't from the Lord. And third, false teaching works its way through a church quickly. Those are the three reasons, as he's kind of building his case for why false teachers should make us so angry. But then he's going to give us kind of this quick note of assurance. It's the fourth thing we're going to look at in the midst of this verse, a quick note of assurance that God will protect Christians in the midst of false teaching, so we don't get too discouraged. But then he's going to end the passage on the conclusion of the first three points. And the conclusion is false teachers make God mad and they should make us mad too. So that's where we're going in this passage. So the the first point Paul makes when building this case that false teachers are dangerous, that they should make us mad, is that false teachers hinder others from believing the gospel. Look where Paul starts, verse 7. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, this is a question Paul asks, but it's a rhetorical question. Because the thing is, he knows who has hindered them. He's not looking for an answer. Who is it who's hindered you? No, the whole letter He's been talking about these false teachers, and the Galatians know that too. Paul's not looking for the answer to that question. So so what's he after? He's not after information. No, what he's doing is offering the Galatian Christians an assessment of what these false teachers are doing. So it's sort of a backdoor way to help them see, the Christians in Galatia, to see what these false teachers are doing. And they are, Paul says, they are hindering you from obeying the truth. And the analogy is one his readers would have been familiar with, one that God's word talks about pretty regularly, one that you're probably familiar with. And the analogy is that the Christian life is like a race. So at the beginning of verse 7, Paul says, you were running well. He's talking about in the Christian life. You're being faithful to the Lord. You're running well. The Christian life is like a race where we're trusting in Christ even when things are tough. We're following Jesus even when things are tough. We're persevering through this life. Remember what Hebrews 12.1 says. He uses the, the same analogy. There the author says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. And the Christian life is, is like a race, and it feels like that, doesn't it? Now, if you love to run, this probably isn't the best analogy for you. But if you hate to run, like me, this is a great analogy. Because the Christian life feels like a race, doesn't it? It's hard. And you feel winded sometimes. You know, when I get out and run, which is not often and does not last long, but shin splints come quick and pains in my lungs and cramps, all those sorts of things. Well, the Christian life is hard. Sometimes that's what being faithful to Christ feels like. You know, it's it's difficult to seek to die to yourself and to die to your desires every day. That's harder than running, isn't it? But it's a good illustration that, that the Lord gives us there. But see, by God's grace, the Galatian Christians, they had been running that race. Not perfectly. None of us does it perfectly. But they'd been faithful. By and large, they were pursuing the Lord. Again, Paul says, you were running well. But then something bad happens. You may have seen clips from the Tour de France. 
where all the bicyclists are riding. I don't think it happens every year. I don't watch it every year, but I've seen a few of these clips where two of them will get tangled up and then a big group of them will just crash. Terrifying, isn't it? They're going fast, those guys are. They're not wearing pads. They're wearing, wearing as little clothing as they can with, for the wind resistance. And one of them hits another one and, and then a ton of them wipe out. Well, that's what had happened to the Galatian Christians. They were running well, but then something happens and it slows them down. The way Paul says in verse seven, something hindered you. And that was a word that was used for races. And in particular, if somebody gets in somebody else's lane and trips them up, which wasn't supposed to happen, there were rules against that in the Greek world, just, just like there are today. Well, in the Galatian Christians' lives, in their pursuit of Jesus, someone had tripped them. And it was these false teachers. They were tripping these young Christians. And, and here's the worst part. The thing the false teachers were tripping them in regards to was believing the gospel. Look again at the question in verse 7. Paul says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? That word truth is used two other times in this letter. Listen to chapter 2, verse 5. He says, to them, the false teachers, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And then here's chapter 2, verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So that's what truth is shorthand for in our verse. Truth is talking about the truth of the gospel. These false teachers are hindering these young Christians from believing the gospel. Now you might wonder, why does Paul use that language of obeying the truth? That's kind of odd, isn't it? Don't we believe truth? Maybe obey commands, but why obey the truth? Well, I think it's because Paul wants everybody to understand that belief in the gospel is something that God commands. It's not just a preference. It's not like, okay, I like this restaurant better, you like this restaurant better, but who's to decide, right? Just different, different strokes for different folks. No, that's, that's not what happens with the gospel. A, a right opinion about the gospel and, and a wrong opinion are, are set by the Lord. The right opinion is the gospel is true, and God has commanded all people everywhere to believe the gospel. Sometimes it's easy to forget that. That's a command from the Lord. Let me read Acts 17.30, or part of it. That's where Paul's preaching the gospel, and he says, God commands everyone everywhere to repent. So God commands everybody to turn from sin and to trust in Christ. As, as God's creation, we all have that obligation. So Paul can use this language of obeying the gospel. Of course, that's an obedience that, that every Christian has. That's what makes us a Christian, is that we trust in Christ. We believe in the gospel so that Christ can cover our sins, make us God's children. But see, that's the exact obedience these false teachers were trying to get the Galatians to transgress, to move away from. They didn't want them to believe the one true gospel. They're, they're calling on these young Christians to turn to a false gospel of salvation through good works. And listen, there, there is honestly nothing worse that one human being can do to another human being than encourage them to let go of the gospel. In fact, it's the only thing a human can do to another human that will affect them for eternity. 
Everything else just affects you for this life. Remember what Jesus said? Don't worry about the one that can hurt your body physically now. Worry about the one that has the, the power to throw you into hell because that has eternal consequences. Well, there, there's nothing a human being can do to another human being that's worse than encouraging them to let go of the gospel. That's what these false teachers were doing. And false teachers today do the exact same thing. Now, now, there's different types of false teachers. There's false teachers who don't claim to be Christians. They've got that going for them because at least they're honest about it, and we can see that. Okay, this is somebody from outside of the church. This is not a Christian. But just like around Galatia, today there's lots of false teachers who claim to be Christian, and that's the problem. That's the worst situation. So the pastor in, in the liberal mainline church who says Jesus really didn't have to die for sins. You don't really even have much sin. And the sin you have, the Lord will overlook it. You know, and they explain the miracles away. And Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. He was more of a moral example. That is a false gospel. There are countless pastors who preach that false gospel and will say it's in the name of Christ. Or the priest who says that justification in God's eyes comes by way of faith in Jesus plus the sacraments of the church. False teaching. Or the Christian church pastor who says you only get the Holy Spirit once you're baptized. False teaching. Or the Mormon missionary who says there are three gods and salvation comes by works. False teaching. False teachers hinder others from believing the gospel. So by way of application, be sure that you're not being hindered by any false teacher. Be cautious about the books you read, about the podcasts you listen to, about the Facebook posts that you ingest. You know, we're, we're good as a culture at, at at least the idea about being careful about what food we eat, maybe at least most of us think, oh yeah, I should be careful about that, or the chemicals we ingest and that sort of thing. But, but this is far more important. Be careful about the teaching that you are bringing into yourself. And, and if you're ever taking in content in any form that you come to realize is hindering your belief in the gospel, turn away from that content. Get rid of it. We, we want teachers that are furthering our obedience to the truth, not hindering it. One thing that's, that's a crazy thing, but it, it shows up every now and then in sports and it shows up in football, not often, but a couple of times. There are times where somebody on an opposing team breaks off a run, and they're headed for the goal line, and there's no defender to stop them. This has happened at least twice that I know of. And an opposing, usually an assistant coach on the sideline, trips that player, which is wild because these games are televised. So the whole world sees it happen. It's happened in college, too. That, that's a crazy thing, pretty horrible a thing that doesn't happen that often. But you know what I've never seen? I have never seen a little kid running to their parents and another adult tripping that little kid on the way to their parent. Praise the Lord, I've never seen that happen. Well, that's what false teachers do. Christians are running to their father by way of belief in Christ, and false teachers are sticking their foot out to try to trip that child of God. That's what's happening here. So with that perspective, it's easier to understand the Lord's anger, isn't it? Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? False teachers hinder others from obeying the gospel. 
But Paul, he continues building his case for the dangers of false teachers. Verse 8, he goes on to say, this persuasion, to turn away from the gospel, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. And this is our second point. False teachers aren't from the Lord. They're not from the Lord. Paul's making it clear that the message these false teachers have been delivering to the Galatians, the message about salvation coming in part through circumcision, that message is not from the one who called them, meaning God. It's not from the Lord. And as Christians, we don't want imposters, do we? These guys are imposters. They're saying they're from the Lord, but they're not. We, we don't want that. Now, the Christian is the one who only wants teachers who speak on behalf of God. Teachers who proclaim God's word. And, and praise God, just, just as a quick note, this is exactly what the Bible is. The Bible is God's word. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Peter says, know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, so the words of Scripture, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is the words of men who spoke from God. The Scriptures are God's exact words. But, but the false gospel being taught where was it from? So if it's not from God, then where did it come from? False gospels today, if they're not from God, then where do they come from? When I was in college, some friends that I had a, a, really, a really unsettling experience at uh, Carowinds. So we went to Carowinds. And, you know, Carowinds has Hanna-Barbera characters. So it has uh, uh, Yogi Bear and whoever else are Hanna-Barbera characters. And they're walking around and they're dressed up. And they have pretty nice, fancy-looking costumes. Well, we saw a guy... In, uh, in a pink spandex outfit and bunny ears and bunny teeth. And he was hopping. And he looked, the quality of his costume looked so different from the quality of all of the other costumes. And so I just asked a park security guard, what's the deal? I mean, could they not foot the bill and get this guy a nicer costume? And the security guard says, oh, that guy doesn't work here. He said, that guy has a season pass. He comes just about every day and he just hops around the park. He doesn't ride any rides. He doesn't get any food. He doesn't play any of the games. And that was unsettling because we had assumed that this guy worked for the park. And then we found out, no, he's a freelancer. He doesn't work for the park in, in any capacity. Well, much, much more unsettling is the fact that although they're oftentimes found in churches and they say they're faithful teachers of the Bible, false teachers don't work for the Lord. They're not from him. Okay, so, so where did their message originate? Well, false gospels come from the partnership between God's two main enemies. They forge the partnership. That's where false gospels come from. One enemy is the world of humans. The, the world that, that we still retain the sinful flesh, but before we were in Christ, those of us in this room that are Christians, we were part of this world completely. So God's enemies, the world of humans that are opposed to him. In our sinful nature, humans are all about false gospels. And that's because false gospels appeal to our sinful nature. That's why humans are all about false gospels. So just think about the health and wealth gospel, where someone preaches that if you're a Christian, nothing bad will ever happen to you. You'll have lots of money and you'll be healthy and you'll be happy. And the rest of the world might struggle with sickness and things like that, but not you because you're in Christ. And they'll say it's a promise of the Lord that if you're in Christ, these things will not happen to you. Not true, number one, we know from our experience and from the word. 
That's a message that humans came up with. But see, that's why it has so much appeal to humans, because humans came up with it. So yeah, big surprise. Fake gospels have appeal to sinful humans. It's because they come from the sinful human heart. They're telling us exactly what we want to hear. Well, the false gospel in Galatia of justification by works, that appeals to our sinful nature too, for this reason. If part of the way that I'm made right in God's eyes is through my own efforts, well, then I have something to boast about. And as sinners, we like that. Not only that, but in part, I am, uh, I'm responsible for the direction I go. My spiritual life is underneath my own authority to a degree. I'm directing myself. All things that our sinful nature likes. That thinking comes straight from the sinful heart of man. So that's one enemy. However, sinful man is being influenced behind the scenes by God's other great enemy. Listen to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. He says, Paul says there, for such men are false apostles. He's talking about false teachers. And he says they are false apostles, meaning they're not really sent from God. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. False gospels are brought by false teachers. False teachers are serving, through their false teaching, they're serving Satan. That's what that verse just told us. Now that is sobering, isn't it? False teaching is motivated by Satan. Sobering, but, but it's the exact kind of sobering that we need. False gospels are a message from the enemy designed to undercut the gospel. So, so when you hear about an author or pastor or church or denomination that believes and preaches a false gospel, remember that not only are those teachers not from the Lord, they're actually working on behalf of the Lord's great enemy. And as Paul reminds them here, if the Galatians move toward his false, this false gospel, they're not only moving toward the intention of these false teachers and Satan, they're also moving away from God. And that's crazy, isn't it? When you see the dichotomy that way, to pursue false teaching is to pursue Satan's way and to leave the one true God's way. Look at the way Paul says it in verse eight. He says, you'd be moving away from him who calls you. He's reminding them, God is the one who saved you in his grace. He's been nothing but good to you. Are you really considering turning away from him and embracing this false gospel from his enemies? That's what false teachers are. So, as far as it concerns us, why would we ever give a pass to someone who says they're from the Lord, but is only disguising himself as one sent from God? It's easy to see why, why they make the Lord so mad, isn't it, false teachers? In verse 8, Paul reminds the Galatians, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. False teachers aren't from the Lord. But our passage, Paul, Paul gives one more reason why false teachers make the Lord so mad and should make us mad. Verse 9, a little leaven, Paul says, leavens the whole lump. Okay, so, so not only do they hinder others from believing the gospel, not only are they not from the Lord, in fact, they're from God's enemy, 
but it's also that false teaching works its way through a church quickly. That's what he's getting at here. And the one thing worse than a dangerous thing is a dangerous thing that works quickly. And the way Paul compares it for us, so we understand, he compares false teaching to leaven, what we would more commonly call yeast, something that makes bread rise. False teaching is like yeast. And this is an illustration Jesus uses in the Gospels. This is Matthew 16. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples, they figure out what he means by that a little bit later on in Matthew 16. They say, or it says, they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread. He's not telling them be worried about literal yeast in bread. No, no, they, he was warning them of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Jesus says false teaching is like leaven. Paul in our passage says false teaching is like leaven. So, so what's the connection? Well, here it is. Yeast is small and seems insignificant. So Maria makes homemade bread a decent amount. And the first time I ever saw those little packets of yeast was after we were married in our house. They're not very impressive. You look at that yeast, teensy little bits of things. I don't even understand how it works. They're alive. It's pretty crazy. But you see somebody put that little bitty stuff in a lump of dough. And it's the craziest thing you guys have seen this. Craziest thing in the world. I would see Maria make that dough and sit it on the counter or sit it in the fridge and it looks normal. And then the next day it has ballooned. And the thing is huge. That's what yeast does, right? It, it produces results quickly. If you watched it minute by minute, you, it's imperceptible. So if the kids sat there and watched the dough, they would think nothing is happening here, but it is happening, isn't it? It's happening steadily. And the next day, the thing is huge. You get massive results. That's what false teaching does. That's why he compares it here to leaven, to yeast. This false teaching of justification by faith in Christ plus works, it probably didn't seem like a huge deal to the Galatians at first. You know, after all, the false teachers, they weren't saying deny Jesus the way that non-Christians in that time were doing. No, they were saying, no, of course, follow Jesus, trust in Jesus. You just need to do this extra thing too, to have your sins forgiven. It probably didn't seem like a huge thing, but but it grew, it affected more of the church, and it led to disastrous consequences, at least potentially. It led to the danger, we saw this last week in verse four of chapter, uh, chapter five. It led to the potential danger of being severed from Christ. False teaching is a dangerous thing that works quickly. A, a few weeks ago, I was trimming some of our bushes in the side of the house, and I hit something that I could tell was not a bush which is always bad. And uh, it was our natural gas line. And I didn't just nick it, I gashed the thing. And instantly I could hear natural gas pouring out of that deal. And I could smell it. And so we had to get everybody out of the house. We had to call the fire department, the big, huge thing. The kids kind of enjoyed parts of it. Well, the only thing worse than a bad thing is a bad thing that happens quickly. You know, it would have been one thing if I had nicked it and there was just a little hiss, but I gashed it and it was pouring out a bad thing that happens quickly. False teaching works its way through a church quickly. Verse nine, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If left unchecked, a false gospel can destroy a church. It can destroy a church. 
And again, part of the reason for that is, is what we talked about a minute ago, the fact that false gospels will always be appealing to sinful humans. They have great appeal. So they travel quickly through people. Look down at verse 11. Paul says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Okay, we're, we're not entirely sure what's going on here, but it looks like the false teachers are charging Paul with hypocrisy. So it looks like they're saying, hey, this guy commands circumcision, even though he's teaching against it, against us. Now, they might have in mind that the fact that with some Gentile converts, like Timothy, uh, Paul encourages them to get circumcised. That's not because Paul thought that had anything to do with forgiveness of sins. He knew that wasn't true. He just thought it'd be helpful for mission work, that uh, uh, ministering in the context of Jews, that, that somebody had the members of their, the male members of their household circumcised. So they could be pointing to that. They could just be making this up and just saying, no, Paul preaches the same gospel we preach. We're not really sure, but for our purposes, Look at Paul's point about why this charge makes no sense. Verse 11 again, he says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Okay, so, so Paul's pointing out the charge of him commanding circumcision, the way these false teachers were. It makes no sense because if he had preached their false gospel, nobody would be upset with him. Nobody would be attacking Paul the way these false teachers were. He says, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? So, so why is it that if Paul had been preaching this false gospel, why would he have not been persecuted? The second half of verse 11 tells us. In that case, by preaching a false gospel, the offense of the cross has been removed. The one true gospel is offensive. It's offensive. That's why the world rejects it. That's why you as a non-Christian rejected it until the Lord opened your eyes and softened your heart through the Spirit's work. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 9, verse 31. It'd be a helpful passage for you to read and think about this afternoon. He talks about this in Romans 9, 31, where he reminds us that, that salvation comes through faith alone and Christ alone, but he says that that gospel is a stumbling block to non-Christians. And it's a stumbling block, it's offensive, because it means our efforts and our smarts and our humility doesn't save us. The thing that saves us is Jesus's work entirely. We can take no credit, and the world will never like that message. Because sinful man likes credit. We like to feel like we've done something. Our sinful flesh does not like the gospel. But that's the gospel, right? We, we have to fully rely on the work of Christ. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you don't know what you think about Jesus, this gospel about the work of Jesus, it's all we have to offer you. But, but like we looked at with the phrase, obeying the truth in verse 7, your creator is calling you to believe this gospel. And he's doing it out of love. He knows there is no other way in the universe for you to get out from under the results of your sin. There's no way for you to get out from under the judgment that's coming on you rightfully because of your sin, other than going through Christ. Christ is the only way. He's the only one that can cover our sins. So come to Christ. Believe in Christ. Trust in the gospel that on the cross, his work will cover all of your sins. 
talk to me if you have questions about that, if you're willing to think more about believing the gospel. In verse 11, Paul says this message will always be offensive. And that's why false gospels spread so quick, right? It's just like get-rich-quick schemes, you know? We get those emails, you probably get those emails, and you wonder, who is it that's clicking on these links, you know? Who's sending this person this money? People do it. And it's because that's appealing. The thing that's being offered is appealing. Well, that's what false gospels do. They offer this thing that will be appealing to sinful man. And of course, that's why as a church, we want to guard ourselves from this kind of false teaching because it can spread through a church so quickly. Listen to the way we say it in our church covenant, which are just the commitments we make to one another as, as members of Cornerstone. We say, we will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical, that word just means based on the gospel, evangelical, based on the gospel. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipleship, and doctrines. So keeping false teaching out of our church, it's the responsibility of all of us that are members of this church. It's a responsibility that, that we need to take seriously, so pray for that. That's a good prayer. Anytime that you've got a minute and you think, oh, I should pray right now, what should I pray for? Pray the Lord would keep false teaching out of our church. That's a great thing to pray for. But also work for that. Pay attention to the preaching and the teaching in particular. Have your Bible open so you can be checking the teaching of the elders to be sure it fits with what the Bible says about the gospel of Christ. So, so as a church, let's, let's pray against false teaching. Let's work against false teaching. False teaching hinders belief in the gospel. It's the most dangerous thing in the universe, and, and what makes it even worse is it spreads quickly. So it's no wonder, right, that it makes the Lord so mad. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. False teaching works its way through a church quickly. But as kind of an aside, but it's here clearly in our passage, we, we don't want to get the wrong idea, though. Even though false teaching is dangerous, even though it spreads quickly, it's fast-moving, God is not powerless in the midst of it. We don't have to worry about the Lord being able to take care of false teaching. He's not at the mercy of it. No, God's in charge over everything. Listen to Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the clear answer is no. False teaching, taking care of it, it's not too hard for the Lord. He's God over everything. And this is our fourth point. God promises that he will protect the Christian in the midst of false teaching. Look at verse 10. Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. So in other words, he's confident the Galatian Christians will continue believing the one true gospel, and they will end up rejecting the false gospel of these false teachers. He trusts that they will continue on. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Like we mentioned last Sunday, the genuine Christian who's trusted in Christ can't lose his or her salvation. The Bible teaches us that. That's a promise that we hold on to because it's such good news for us. See, because Paul has told us how dangerous false teachers are and, and how attractive and fast-moving it is, we've got to understand, even in the midst of that kind of danger, God will protect you. 
God will protect the Christian. He, he's so good to us, isn't he? So although we have to be cautious about false teaching and the way that his word tells us to, our, our posture should ultimately be one of hope and trust. But it's not trust in ourselves, praise the Lord, not in our own abilities. Look again at what Paul tells us in verse 10. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. It's the Lord who ultimately keeps genuine Christians from believing false gospels. God will protect the Christian in the midst of false teaching. However, even though as Christians, we can have confidence that, that God will protect us, he'll preserve us from a false gospel, that doesn't mean we should consider these false teachers any less dangerous or that we should be emotionally unaffected by their work, by the work of false teachers. No, again, our passage is actually meant to produce us a certain kind of judgment and feeling in us. This is our final point this morning. False teachers make God mad, and they should make us mad too. That's the point of this entire passage of Scripture. Look at how mad false teachers make God. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So Paul knows God will protect the Christian from false teaching. He's also confident that the false, teaching, uh, false teacher will bear the penalty we're told, or it could be translated, bear the judgment. Paul's confident false teachers will be punished. And who will punish them? The Lord. In verse 10, Paul says it's the Lord he has confidence in that these things will happen. God will punish false teachers. This is actually exactly the way Paul begins the whole letter to the Galatians. In chapter one, he's talking about how these false teachers are troubling the Galatians by teaching a distorted gospel. In chapter one, verse nine, he says, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That word just means cursed by God. Paul's saying God will punish these false teachers. They make God mad, don't they? Listen to what God commands for false teachers under the old covenant. This is the Old Testament passage that we heard from earlier, Deuteronomy 13. Verse five, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, the false teacher shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord, your God. False teachers make God mad, don't they? Listen to Jesus. You might remember, but Matthew 23, it's a chapter where he lists the seven woes to the Pharisees and Sadducees, where he's basically saying God's judgment is headed toward you guys, you're in trouble in the Lord's eyes. Well, this is what Jesus says to the false teachers toward the end of that discourse. Matthew 23, verse 33. Jesus says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus is angry enough with false teachers to call them serpents in no uncertain terms to say you are headed for hell if you don't repent. Or listen to the congregational reading we had this morning. Matthew 18, verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it's exactly what Paul said, they're hindering you from believing the gospel, from obeying the gospel. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. 
False teachers make Jesus mad, don't they? And as we close, Paul, Paul says the same thing here. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. False teachers make God mad. Look down at where we started. Last verse, verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So again, the, the false teachers, their big agenda item is having people circumcise the males in their household. They taught that was required for salvation. Paul's picking up that imagery here and saying, I wish the false teachers would have just cut off their entire organ. The harshest words in the New Testament are four false teachers. We just heard several of them. You're not going to find Jesus talking in that way about other groups. You're not going to see Paul talking in that way about other groups. The harshest words in the New Testament are reserved for false teachers. Why? Because of the three points that we just talked about. If, if false teachers in Galatia accomplish their task, then people will be kept out of heaven. They hinder others from believing the gospel. When it comes to someone's spiritual life, the false teacher is the person who's poking holes in the life support machine in the hospital, right? They're the person who's slowly feeding poison to a group of people to eventually take their spiritual life. They're, they're the person trying to trip God's children as they run toward their father. Because the false teacher, if successful, will eternally keep people out of heaven. And as they teach that false gospel of spiritual death, they're doing it not on behalf of God, but on behalf of his enemies. And that teaching is, isn't only eternally dangerous, it's, it's also appealing and spreads quickly. What should possibly make us angrier than that? Nothing. Think about it this way. If, if you're talking about your anger on a scale from 1 to 10, as Christians, we should be able to say on a scale from 1 to false teaching. That could be our scale. It should be our 10. And I only say that because it's God's 10, and it's Jesus's 10, the Father, the Son, and it's the Holy Spirit's 10, speaking through Paul in this passage. So we see why false teachers should make us mad. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's pray. And Father, we're, we're so thankful that your word reveals your heart to us. We understand, Father, it's not just that you give us certain things to believe, which you do, it's not just that you give us certain things to do, which you do. You give us certain ways to feel. Father, you let us in on your heart, and then through your word, you mold us to feel about things the way you feel about them. Father, as a church, give us a heart that hates false gospels. Father, not, not simply out of hate for false gospels, but, but Father, out of love for the real gospel and love for people. Father, we pray we'd be marked as a church that so badly wants sinners to be connected to you through Christ, 
that so badly wants to see us and our fellow members of this church persevere in the faith so we can enter heaven with Christ as our advocate, we'd be so dogged about that that we would want to protect the one true gospel. Father, give us the grace to do that in this church. We're thankful that the gospel is such good news. And Father, we pray that you would keep that good news pure in our lives and households and in this church. We pray that you would do it for your glory. Take just a moment, pray individually and silently that the Spirit would press these truths in on your heart.